This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. So tonight I'd like to extend the teachings of our meditation on becoming the loving witness, the loving awareness, and talk about how we can manage ourselves, especially in these very challenging times. At the end of our annual three-month retreat that we started 40-some years ago uh, on the East Coast at our center in Barry Insight Meditation Society, we used to take a week at the end that we called Integration Week to get people who'd been silent for a long time prepared to go back into the complexity of their ordinary lives. And we would show movies sometimes for them. And I remember renting this black and white film. It was a documentary of a whole succession of the speeches of Dr. Martin Luther King. Very, very moving. And he would get up and begin to speak and this incredible oratory would come out of him with so much vision and heart, uh, he was really a, like a prophetic voice and he would be finished and sometimes he would fall back in the arms of the, the men, the people around him as if he'd become a channel for something great, which was true. And I remember, as we all do, that famous statement where he said, the arc of the moral universe may be long, but it bends toward justice. And I think of it in these times, because they are difficult times. It's hard to witness and feel because it's part of us what's happening in Afghanistan. It's hard with the newly released UN climate change report, and yet we've known it, but it comes into our bodies and our spirits. It's hard with the pandemic and the Delta variant and there is emotionally responses of being worried or exhausted or languishing or for some of us, grief and loss. And how are we going to fix all of this? We better hurry up. Things are difficult. I think of the story of a young, ardent young man who came to a great Zen monastery and found the master and said, I want to come in and practice in this world 
there's nothing I want more than enlightenment. The master nodded. And he said, the young man said, if I really apply myself, if I, if I practice, how long will it take me to get enlightened? And the master smiled back and said, give me 10 years. And the young man said, but wait, I'm really on fire. If I'm really ardent and do it, then how long? The master looked back and said, in your case, probably 20 years. And the man got agitated and upset. He said, why did you raise it from 10 to 20? I told you I would really do it. And the master said, yeah, in your case, maybe even 30 years. What can you take from the story? You know, where are we going? What will we find when we get there? Some kind of promised land in the future? With everything that's happening in the world and in our lives, should we be optimistic or pessimistic? The pessimists among us look out and see the suffering in Afghanistan and the struggle as the Taliban has taken over and people trying to get out and the loss of freedoms and particularly the vulnerability of the women and so many more things. The pessimists look at Syria and South Sudan and Myanmar and the rainforest in Brazil and in parts of the U.S. that are losing so much and so much vulnerability and different forms of suffering. And it's heartbreaking in the way people mistreat each other. And if you look into the Buddhist text, in the cosmological sections, there are descriptions of the ends of empire on the earth with increasing disasters and shorter lives and uh, natural disasters and, and human-made disasters. And it's enough to make a pessimist out of almost anyone. But then there's the optimistic side. This is not just a time of change in our lives, dear friends. It is really a time of transformation. And if nothing else, the pandemic and climate change and the calls for racial and economic justice are showing us how completely interconnected we are. And the young people in the world see it and know it. The great majority of the population of Africa, parts of India and China are young people. And they're filled with passion and hope for the future. And there are all these possible breakthroughs in fusion power and medicine and agriculture. All kinds of human possibilities. And we are survivors. We've not only survived as human beings, we've taken difficulty and then made new leaps out of it. So which is it? The poet Rilke calls it this life that faces both ways, both ways. Because if you look really honestly, whether at optimism or pessimism, you realize that they're only thoughts. They're only ideas. They're not the reality. We don't know, actually. These are just views. And people who cling to their views, said the Buddha, many different occasions, those who 
who are free let go of their views, and those who cling to their views move through the world annoying other people. It's one of my favorite little passages from the Buddha. And you know it, people who are really attached to the way they believe things should be. But here we are, we're in this time, and it's not an easy time. We look back at the story that's told of the Buddha's enlightenment, seeking liberation, freedom, awakening. He took his seat under the Bodhi tree, the tree of enlightenment, and tried through that last night before enlightenment to steady his heart and quiet his mind and see deeply. And as he did, as the story is told, Mara appeared. Mara is the name in the Indian mythology of the god or the being, the archetype, who represents all the difficulties of the world. And Mara came in many different forms. Mara, as the Buddha sat there, and you've all heard this story, arose first as temptations, desires and needs, and showed the Buddha all the things that he could have. Mara sent his most beautiful daughters and the most amazing food and all the possibilities. Don't you want something? All the things that we could want. And the Buddha sat and said, I see you, Mara. With loving awareness, he became the witness to Mara appearing. And Mara got frustrated and sent what are called the armies of Mara. And there are these paintings and depictions of flaming arrows and swords and uh, all of the armies of aggression and anger and so forth to knock the Buddha off his seat. And as it's painted, the Buddha holds up this hand and you see a line from his fingertips going to his heart and he touches each of the arrows and sword uh, and, and spears as they come to him with the touch of compassion and they turn into flower petals and fall at his feet. And finally, the Buddha sits quietly and then Mara comes in the form, the last form, the form of doubt. Self-doubt, doubt in the whole process. Who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? What do you think is possible? This world is the way that it is. There's no way for you to find freedom. And again, finally, the Buddha touches the earth. It says, the earth is my witness. I've sat under this tree. I have practiced and practiced and practiced for this moment to be present for it all. And I have no doubt. And finally, the earth washed away the armies of Mara and the doubt, disappeared. And the Buddha's heart and mind became absolutely silent. And as the morning star was ready to set, the Buddha saw that all things are impermanent. That all things arise like a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow a phantom and a dream. He saw the evanescence of all things and found that the freedom was not to cling to any of them. To escape the snares of the king of death, as he said in a conversation later with Mogarajan, how not to be seen by the king of death, not to hold on to a single thing, to claim none of it as 
me or mine or identify with it. And instead, he became silent awareness itself, the witness to all things, both the vast stillness and freedom beyond the whole sense of identity. He became freedom itself. Now, the interesting thing in my experience as a teacher all these decades is when I've led retreats, whether it's Baltimore or Indonesia, whether it's, you know, Tucson or, you know, Switzerland or all these places around the world, one of the big surprises for people is that Mara appears everywhere. You sit down, minding your own business. Okay, I'm going to sit and meditate, make myself calm and steady and see with clarity, bring compassion. And who appears? Guess who? Well, it's Mara again. Mara finds you wherever you go. In fact, even after the Buddhist night of enlightenment, you read the text in the history, Mara kept coming back. Fifty times Mara reappeared, testing the Buddha. And each time he would say, oh, Mara, is that you? In fact, Thich Nhat Hanh writes this beautiful account of the Buddha seated in a cave, quietly meditating with his attendant Ananda outside. And Mara, sometimes translated as the evil one, appears and begins to ask Ananda, I want to see the Buddha. And Ananda says he's not here. And the Buddha hears the conversation and says, Ananda. Is that my old friend Mara come round again? And Ananda didn't want the Mara to come in, but he had to answer, yes, it is. And the Buddha said, set out a table. Let us have tea together. And he invited Mara into tea and said, how is it going, Mara? How is it being the evil one? Mara shook his head and said, it's really tough. People hate me. You know, I have a really hard job inspiring everybody to be bad with aggression and temptations and so forth. Buddha said, yes, he was quite sympathetic and compassionate. He said, you know, it's not even that easy being a Buddha, Mara. People distort my teachings. They want things from me that I can't do. They have all these imaginations and fantasies that they put on me. We both have tough jobs, don't we, Mara? Take some tea, Mara. I'll see you when you come back again. So here we are. Dear friends, we got ourselves in trouble, which is called the human incarnation. You know, what Zorba the Greek called the Greek called the whole catastrophe. We got ourselves a life that has birth and death, praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute. Pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, the life of opposites. We got ourselves born into a world of unbearable beauty and the ocean of tears. Take a breath. Here we sat together to meditate, to become the loving witness, the loving awareness. It's so mysterious. We don't know quite how we got here. And we're only here for a short while, a brief while. The 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, praise and 
lame, gain and loss. They rise and fall in this human incarnation ceaselessly. So how do we live? How do we live wisely amidst it all? In any moment, you can become the loving witness. You can become loving awareness. It's why we sit in meditation. It's why we train not to have a particular special, amazing experience and hold your breath and hope it will last, but to sit with heartbreak and love and longing and fear and loneliness and sweetness and tenderness and anger. To step back, to put that little half smile that Thich Nhat Hanh recommends as we meditate, that you see all those images and statues of the Buddha. To say, as Ajahn Chah, my teacher, used to say, oh, it's like this. Whatever arises, fear is like this. Loneliness is like this. Longing is like this. Hope is like this. We become the loving witness of it all. Spacious, caring, wise. Now you will be tried. Here we are with the spread of the Delta variant. People desperately, our children desperately needing to back, be back in school, even with masks, people wanting to go back to work. The flood of refugees as the oceans rise, as the temperature changes with climate change. The people around who don't vaccinate, the propaganda and untruth that spread around the world. You become the loving witness to all of that. Yes. And yet, it's also midsummer here in the Northern Hemisphere anyway, and the fruit is ripening, and the blueberries are sweet, and the blackberries hang heavy on the vine. And I just recently went to a friend's house who had this amazing mulberry tree with these huge, long, sweet mulberries. And then the organic strawberries at our farmer's market, and five varieties of peaches, and the Pluots and the plums. What an amazing earth that brings us this bounty. How do we respond? What channel do you turn to amidst it all, amidst the joys and beauty and the sorrows? This from Lee Horton. So Lee Horton, among the two million people more in our criminal justice system, he and his brother Dennis spent 25 years behind bars, accused of robbery and murder, sentenced to life without parole. They always maintained their innocence. And this year after being locked up for a quarter of a century, their case was reviewed, finally 
and they were granted clemency. And he talked about how amazing it was to come out and not have handcuffs on him, so being put on him when he was in a car. And he said, when they take everything from away from you, I came out into this world and everything becomes beautiful. When we got out, just to tell you a story, me, my brother and I went to the DMV a couple of days later to get our driver's license back. Now me, my brother, another man who was commuted, we stood in line for two and a half hours. And we'd heard all the stories that everybody tell us, the bad things about the DMV. We had the most beautiful time. And all the people were looking at us because we were smiling and we were laughing and they couldn't understand why we were so happy. And it was just that, just being in line, standing at the DMV was a beautiful thing. It was wonderful. I mean, I was in awe of everything around, the things everyone takes for granted become the best things in the world for you. You know, having an onion just to cook your food becomes priceless. And he goes on and on about it. What channel will we choose? Because the world offers herself to us with its ocean of tears and its unbearable beauty every day. Now, when I speak about Lee Horton, I think about my close and beloved relationship with Ramdas, colleague, friend, teacher, inspiration. And he tells a story from years ago when he was living at Millbrook in upstate New York. And at that time, he was still in the Richard Alpert mode. He, he and Tim Leary had been kicked out of Harvard for giving LSD to undergraduate students. And he was going around talking about the psychedelic revolution and enacting it as they did at Millbrook. And he tells the story of dropping some acid and then he needed to go somewhere to the market or something. So he got in his big old car and got on the road, whatever it was, Route 9 that went near Millbrook. And he started to drive along and all of a sudden behind him, he saw this flashing blue light from a police car. So he knew enough, even though he was tripping, to pull over. He said, and this officer got out of the car with the blue light and walked over to him wearing a blue uniform, the state trooper. And Ramdas said, I saw the blue light, and it was the same blue light that surrounds Krishna. When you look at all the beautiful images from India, especially baby Krishna, Krishna's surrounded by blue light and I saw this blue light come and I knew it was the God Krishna has stopped and come to visit me. And the officer came and Ramdas lowered his window and he said, he said, I would have given him anything. This is a visit from God. What do you want? I said to him. And he said, I want to see your license and registration, sir. <laughs> so Ramdas gave him his license and registration. He thought, said Ramdas, that he was a state trooper, but I knew who he really was. I knew he was God. He gave me my license and my registration back, 
and told me told me that I'd been driving far too slowly. Apparently, he was going twenty miles an hour on this highway or fifteen. And then he looked at me so kindly, and he says, "Go on your way now, but make sure to pay better attention." He said, "And I got these teachings from God." What channel do we tune in? There's something mysterious about this world, amazing that it presents itself. And with mindfulness, mindful, loving awareness, like Lee Horton, we can see it all anew. Like the child of the spirit that was born in you, it's still there underneath it all to say, to see with the eyes of amazement. Mary Oliver's famous lines, and therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy and as singular, and each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say all say all my life, I was a bride married to amazement. What a line. Married to amazement. And it is amazing. Take a breath. Remember. And when we see with amazement, with loving awareness, we also see with the heart. Do you remember the story that I've told from past years about the rabbi in the woods? The story is, see if I can find it. Next chapter. It turns out in this story, I'll begin to tell it and then I'll find the written pages for it. It turns out that sometime long ago, there had been a great order of monastics, and all of these monastics who had spread out across the Christian lands had created temples of meditation and contemplation and prayer. But over the years, as modernization happened, the temple started to close and die out. People were less interested in going into monasteries. And so finally it was left that there was only one main mother house, if you will, one place where a handful of monks, there were only six of them that were left, and they were all in their 70s. And they were a dying order, basically. It turned out near that monastery that there was also a special retreat center for the master rabbi, the mystic of their neighborhood, of that area from the Jewish tradition. And because the monks were quiet and listened, they could sometimes tell when the rabbi came in the woods. And they became kind of despondent as everything was dying out. And they said, maybe we should send someone to go over our abbot and speak with the rabbi and he can give us some advice. 
Maybe he can help us or at least understand us. So the abbot went to the hut of this mystic and told him about the loss of so many other monasteries. And now there were just this small group of them left. The rabbi kindly commiserated and said, yes, in these times, it's very difficult. And they sat down and they prayed together. They read from the Torah. They read from their scriptures. They felt it's wonderful to see one another in this time and place, no matter what happens. Have you no advice for us? The abbot asked the rabbi. He said, no, I, I really have no advice, but I have a vision that came to me, which I don't understand that somehow the Messiah is with you. Maybe even one of you. So the abbot of the old monastery went back. He pondered on what the rabbi had said. And he told the other monks when they said, what did he say? He said, the Messiah is one of us. And in the months that followed, they all pondered these words. What could that mean? Could he have met one of the monks here, the abbot? If he met anyone, probably Father Abbot. He's been our leader for a generation. On the other hand, he might have met Brother Thomas. Certainly Brother Thomas is a holy man. Certainly he couldn't have met Brother Elred. Elred gets crotchety at times. But come to think of it, even though he's a thorn in people's sides, when you look back at it, Elred is virtually always right, often very right. Maybe the rabbi meant Brother Elred, but surely not Brother Philip. Philip's so passive, a real nobody. But then, almost mysteriously, he has a gift for somehow always being there when you need him. He just magically appears by your side. Maybe Philip is the Messiah. Of course, the rabbi didn't mean me. He couldn't possibly have meant me. I'm just an ordinary person. Yet supposing he did. Suppose I'm the Messiah. Oh, God, not me. I couldn't be that much for you, could I? And as they contemplated in this manner over the weeks and months, the old months, monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect on the off chance that one among them might be the Messiah. And on the off, off chance that each monk himself might be the Messiah, they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect. Because the forest where it was situated was beautiful, it happened that people still occasionally came to visit the monastery, to picnic on its lawn and wander some of the paths and go into the dilapidated chapel to meditate. And as they did so, without even being conscious of it, they sensed this aura of extraordinary respect that now began to surround the five old monks and seemed to radiate out from them and permeate the atmosphere of this place. There was something strangely attractive, even compelling about it, and hardly knowing why, they began to come back to the monastery more frequently, to picnic, to play, 
to pray. They began to bring their friends to show them this special place. And their friends brought their friends. And then it happened that some of the younger men who came to visit the monastery started to talk more and more with the old monks. And sensing their beautiful respect and care for everything. After a while, one asked if he could join and another and another. And so within a few years, the monastery had once again become a thriving order, thanks to the rabbi's gift. A vibrant center of life and beauty had arisen from the gift of reminding the monks who they really are. What does it mean in this mystery to treat ourselves with that kind of respect, to treat one another with that kind of respect? Now, one of the concerns I hear from my colleagues and out there in the spiritual industry, so to speak, of which I am a a part embedded into the spiritual industry thing, which I can kind of look at now with some amusement and loving awareness is, the ruining of the loss of depth of what the tradition has. We had two-month retreats at Spirit Rock and three-month retreats at IMS and year-long trainings, monastic trainings that used to be so common in Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka and elsewhere where we received these beautiful teachings. But more often than not, people are doing very short retreats. They've shrunk from three months and two months to 10 days or a week or a weekend. And there's a certain loss of depth that happens. There's something amazing when you can come for 10 days or longer and be silent, and sit with your own body and heart and mind. Things open up you can't even imagine if you've never done it. It's powerful and difficult at first <clears throat> and amazingly beautiful. And we see people at the end of retreats and we like to talk about the the meditative facelift, the Vipassana facelift, because people's eyes are shining at the end, and the kind of smile and openness, it's so beautiful to see. But instead, now, meditation has gotten shortened from one hour to 30 minutes or 20 minutes, and now I'm seeing the call for three-minute meditation. And at the same time, some of the modern neuroscience is coming out, says that three minutes does a lot. If in your day, you can take a few times for this sacred pause, if you will, this moment where you stop for three minutes and quiet and become the loving witness oh, here I am caught up in this process at work. Here I am having to deal with this in my family. Here I am cooking, exercising. Here I am in the middle of tending, you know, paying my bills or or caring for my garden or answering the emails and watching the news. Let me take a moment, three minutes, one minute to pause and step back and become the loving witness of life, rest as loving awareness and say, well, this day, this moment with its joys and its sorrows, 
This is what I have to hold. This is the life I can give. And in just a few breaths, our identity shifts from being caught in the difficulties and the struggles and the ambitions and the problem-solving, the plans and the memories and the emotions and all of those things we get identified with. <sighs> Loving awareness. Wow, look at this day. Look at this light like Lee Horton, look at this amazing day. Look at this line in the DMV, wow. Look at the, the berries and the summer fruit in a supermarket that has more food than any empire and any emperor and empress in previous thousands of years would have had what you have in your local supermarket would astonish them. Take some breaths. And look at it all with the eyes of wisdom and loving heart. Become that loving awareness itself. This is what you can do. And this is really the invitation for freedom. Yes, Mara will come. And you can say, oh, Mara, is that you? I see you. But it's never too late to see with the eyes of mercy. To start anew exactly where you are. Because where you are is always the place to awaken and find freedom. Again and again, the invitation from the Tao. I have just three things to teach. Simplicity, patience, compassion. These three are your greatest treasures. Simple in actions and thoughts, you return to the source of being. Patient with both friends and enemies, you accord with the way things are. Compassionate toward yourself, you reconcile with all beings in the world. When you learn to sit in the midst of it, when you learn to say, oh, Mara, is that you? I see you. When you learn to step back and become the loving awareness itself, the loving witness, then you become a model of how to live in this magnificent and troubled human incarnation. You bring your heart to what matters. And it's so clear when people are hungry. I think it was the Pope who said, when there are people who are hungry, you pray for the hungry and then you feed them. That's real prayer. And where you go, you sow seeds of respect. You tend the neighborhood. You walk through this dusty world, as it's called, and as the Buddha did for 45 years. And you tend the garden of this world with your loving heart, with your stillness. You become the loving awareness itself that's not caught up and frightened and grasping. And for me, I'm, I'm on a lot of boards now. <laughs> I think I'm on seven or eight boards, boards of incredible organizations working with refugees or 
climate boards, the regeneration board of Paul Hawken, that's extraordinary, or education board, or the board of Partners Asia working with all the situation that's happening, heartbreaking in Burma and Myanmar and countries around there. Um, so many different organizations. And the people involved are so good hearted. And part of what I bring, yes, I give money, I help connect people, I give my own visions. But a lot of it as an elder is to sit in the seat of loving awareness and say, yes, we've been through this before. Yes, we human beings have suffered wars and environmental disasters, earthquakes and typhoons and tornadoes and pandemics in the past. And we know how to do this. We know how to hold hands. We know how to keep our hearts steady and calm. We know how to see that we're woven together in this mystery. And then we can respond. And we can respond not with our fear or our ambition, not with optimism or pessimism, both of which just ideas. We can respond with the heart. I guess I want to read you one more story. See if I can find it here. Just give you a sense of how playful you can be, even in the midst of the difficulty. And I've seen it when those who are wise, those who meditate as we do and learn to center yourself, as the Tao said, to sit in that center of patience and simplicity, and more than anything of love, of being the loving witness. And then you get up and you work. You give your money, you join the organization, you tend a garden, you pick something that you care about. It's not your job to pick them all, but it's to pick one of them at least and offer your gifts and your service and your help. I'm 92 years old, all right. I get up every morning at 7 a.m. Each day I remind myself, wake up, get up. I talk to my legs, legs get moving. Legs, you're an antelope. It's a matter of mind over matter when you're in your 90s. You have to get the spirit right. And I'm out on the street, 7.30 a.m. sharp. I'm wearing my honorable sanitation commissioner badge they gave me from City Hall. I'm alert. I'm ready. I'm out there. And I got my whistle. My job is to help get parked cars off the street so they can bring in the sanitation trucks and the Wayne broom, the big one. 30 grand for a broom. So when they show up, I go around blowing my whistle to get people to move their cars. I have a great time. People are asleep. They're busy with business. They're busy taking time off from their business. They're busy having a good time. They're busy not having a good time. Whatever, I don't care. I blow my whistle. I'm all over the place. I don't discriminate either. I go after the sanitation men too. The union got them a coffee break. Some coffee break. They're having eggs, they're having bacon, they're having toast, they're having French toast. I kid them about it. And I go right into the restaurant and I blow my whistle. 
They love it. They understand. Everybody loves it. Everybody understands. It's the whistle that gets them. Sometimes I'm having such a laugh, I can't even blow it. And then I get back to work. Schleppers, get moving. Let's go. Move those cars. This used to be such a beautiful city. People cared. If you didn't pay your rent, the sheriff would come and put your furniture out on the street. But the poorest of the poor would come out automatically and drop their pennies and nickels at your house and put you back into your apartment. That's neighborhood. Now, sadly, it's different. Things have gone out of kilter. Hard to say why. People seem to be lost in their own lives. I see them on the streets lost in their own thoughts. Not that I'm all that different myself. I'm a schlep myself. I've had many bad habits, as many as anyone. You should see my apartment. It's a mess. Me, Mr. Clean. But I'm trying. Let's try, you know. It's all possible. What can I tell you? I'm not a saint or a wise man. I'm not the 2,000-year-old man. I'm only the 92-year-old man, just a senior citizen. But what do I know that everybody else doesn't know? We know. I just go out there in the morning and blow my whistle. That's what I do. And you do what you do. And me, I'm having a great time, wonderful time. And when people see how much fun I'm having, they have to laugh. What else can they do? And then I hit them with it. Move your car. I never met him, but I love his story. And it tells me something, and maybe you as well, that it's one thing, you know, to get caught up in our lives, as he describes in his own way. And then it's another to realize that we do have a choice of which spirit and which channel. We can be the loving witness, the loving awareness, and then we can engage from that place in the world with joy and openness in spite of it all. What better to do? What better? What better could we do with this life, with this mysterious incarnation? Thank you, my friends. Thank you for listening. So grateful. You know, when I give these talks, I give them as a kind of reminder for you. But you know who else I'm reminding, don't you? As Miss Piggy would say, moi, this one here, there are ways that I remind myself to go out in the street with my whistle or whatever I do as a meditation teacher. Instead of a whistle, I have my bell. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your good hearts. Thank you that we get to remember together the spirit that's possible.